Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are starting tonight in Isaiah 45. The place where I would like to start is in Isaiah 45, verse 21. And this will help us set the context for everything else that we're going to talk about tonight. See if this sounds familiar. Isaiah 45, verse 21, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior? There is none except me. Starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah, we have seen God laying out his case, laying out his argument for his supremacy and his singularity. He's been basing his case on the fact that he does things that no other God, no created God, no wooden God, no metal God could possibly do, and also points out that he does things that no human being could possibly do. And his number one example is, I predict the future, and I tell you the past, and I tell you why the past occurred, and no one else can do that. So I want you to see that the things we talk about here in chapter 45 are all part of God's argument that concludes with, I'm the only God. There is no one besides me. And you come and declare your case. You come and make your argument. Indeed, all of you get together, agree together, consult together, and then answer this question, Who is it that announced this from old? In a moment, we'll find out what the this is referring to. Who else has announced this from of old? And who else has long since declared it? And then the implication is, and brought it about. So God continues to tell the future in advance. He has Isaiah and all the prophets write it down. So that when those events of history come to pass... They can go back and look at what was written and recognize that God declared these things long before they happened. Now, at the beginning of chapter 45, we're going to read about Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, an actual historic personage. We know a lot about Cyrus. We know when he lived. We know where he lived. We know that he was the king of Persia. We know his battles. We know the people groups and countries that he conquered. We know all that. We also know that he was responsible for sending the Jews back to Jerusalem, letting them rebuild the temple, and then later the walls. We know all that about Cyrus, and we know where he fits historically in the history of the Middle East. We also know Isaiah. We know when he lived on the planet. We know when his prophetic ministry was happening when he was writing. It is even more firm 
We even know it more exactly because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have confirmed so much of Isaiah's writing. So we know that he was writing before Cyrus came onto the scene. And in fact, depending on whether you're going to start uh, counting from the birth of Cyrus or the time that Cyrus became king in Persia or the time that Cyrus let the children of Israel go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. And depending on where exactly Isaiah's prophetic career started and ended and where this fits in it, what we know for certain mathematically is that it is 150 to 200 years before the actual event that Isaiah wrote this down. So about as long as America's been a country, he wrote this stuff down. And then we know that it happened in actual human history. I love examples like this whenever I'm defending the veracity of the Bible or whenever I'm even questioning Is the Bible true? I go back to moments like this, and there's no place else, no other written documentation anywhere else, no writing of any other respected religion in the history of the world that does what this chapter does, which is to predict what's going to happen, and then even though the Bible does record that Cyrus becomes king of Medo-Persia, that he does conquer Babylon, that he does release the Jews. You read about Nehemiah, you read about Ezra, you read about the rebuilding of Jerusalem in troublesome times. So the Bible confirms it, but even if you didn't have the Bible confirming it, human history confirms it. The actual facts of Middle Eastern history confirm what Isaiah wrote down. And I love it when God does that where you don't even have to take it on faith or your confidence in the word of God. Yes, the word of God confirms it. But even if you didn't have that, you have the confirmation of actual human history on the planet to prove that what Isaiah is about to tell us all actually occurred in time. And God uses that as the demonstration that he's the only God who is because nobody else could do this. If you want to put that to the test, take a shot at telling us what's going to happen 200 years from now. And name somebody by name. Tell us who the president of the United States is going to be in 200 years, if the United States is still here. Just name some significant world leader 200 years from now by name and see if it comes out to be true. God is so confident in his ability to control the future that he's willing not only to say what nation is going to conquer what nation, And then include in his promises to Cyrus the nations that he is going to allow him to conquer. You're going to see that in this chapter as well. But on top of being in control of different nations, conquering different nations, he even names by name the particular king who's going to accomplish these things. And there are so many variables that could have happened in that 150 to 200 year span. There are so many things that might have occurred to mess up this plan if human beings actually had the freedom of will to do whatever they want to do. There are so many ways that this plan could have been upended and yet it came out exactly right because God continues to say what the future is going to be 
and then implements his almighty power to make sure that the future happens. He doesn't say, I predict the future. He says, I declare the future. And because he declares what the future is going to be, he can then exercise his almighty power to make sure that the future turns out exactly like he said it's going to turn out. And he says he does that so that people will know, I'm the only one who can do this. It's all part of his argument ever since Isaiah 40, where he's arguing, I'm the only God that is, and I'm the only God who can do stuff like this. So with that in mind, let's start reading at chapter 45, verse 1. Because there are so many interesting theological moments here. Starting with the fact that three times God is going to say, I'm going to make you king. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to make you powerful and mighty. I'm going to give nations into your hands. And oh yeah, you don't know me. He's going to say, you're my shepherd. You're my anointed. I'm going to anoint you to be the king of the Middle East. I'm going to give nations into your hands. And you don't know me. And I'm going to use you for the sake of my people Israel to deliver them back so that they can reestablish my worship. And you don't know me. And that's why Isaiah at one point will say, you're a God who hides himself. You're right there behind the scenes making everything work. And yet the very people who you're working on don't see you. Don't recognize that it's your almighty powerful sovereign hand who is in control of everything that's happening you're a god who hides himself i think we could say that that's still true in many ways we still know that god is absolutely sovereign we still know he's in control we still know that he is the driving force behind the world the first cause behind all things and yet if you talk to most people they won't admit that even though their lives are in his hand and so Isaiah would say, you're a God who hides himself. So there's a whole lot of real interesting theology going on here as God continues to defend himself. Have I introduced that enough now? Okay. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. God starts right away by saying, you're the king that I've anointed. You're the one I've chosen. You're the one who I have decreed to be the king who is going to deliver my people. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. That phrase, loose the loins, means to make other kings afraid. They're going to be afraid of you. You're going to be so powerful. And I am the one who is directing all this. In fact, God likens it to taking a child by his right hand and guiding him and leading him to subdue nations and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Every major city has walls and gates and the best way to conquer a city is not by going through the wall or over the wall. If you can open the gate, that's your best entrance. And God says, I'm going to open the gates. I'm going to see to it that you conquer great cities. I will go before you. I'll make the rough places smooth. In other words, I'm going to make your journey very successful. I will shatter the doors of bronze. 
I will cut through their iron bars, and I will give to you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places. Big cities were always very careful to make sure that their treasures were hidden in safe places, fortified places. And here's God saying, I'm not only going to let you conquer cities, I'm not only going to guide you by the hand to take over the Middle East, but I'm going to give you treasures you don't even know about, the hidden treasures. So you're going to become wealthy and you're going to become powerful. And I'm going to do all that for you. For what reason? In order that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Because he started out by calling him by name. The Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed. Now, it doesn't say so in the Bible. But so the story goes that at one point, the leaders in Israel who had this prophecy of Isaiah in their hand actually showed it to Cyrus and said, you know, our scriptures talk about you. And some historians postulate that maybe that was one of the motivating factors that resulted in Cyrus allowing the Jews to go back and rebuild it because here their God has already named him by name. So God says, so that you're going to know that it's I, it is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, for the sake of Israel, my chosen. There's that language of election again. And because Israel is God's elect, because Jacob is servant to God, for that reason, God called Cyrus by name so that God would know that it was the God of the Israelites who actually accomplished this. It's not going to be any of his idols. It's not going to be any of his foreign gods. It's not going to be any of the other things that the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Medes and the Persians, nothing that they worshipped accomplished this. But the God of Israel did. And the God of Israel wants his worship restored in Jerusalem. So at some point, Cyrus came to that realization and allowed the people to go back and rebuild the temple. So God is doing all this for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, my elect. For that reason, I have called you by your name. It's such a remarkable statement. God keeps saying it. I called you by your name. What if Cyrus's parents, when Cyrus was born, had not named him Cyrus? What if Cyrus's grandparents hadn't had any children? There are just so many variables that could have happened to mess this up. And God keeps pointing it out. Not only did I decide it was going to be you, I decided your name and I named your name a couple hundred years in advance just to demonstrate to you that only the God of Israel can do that. Now, restore my worship. You can see why Cyrus would go, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good evidence that your God knows what he's doing. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, I have called you by your name, and I have given you this title of honor. Yeah, you're the king of the Middle East, though you have not known me. I'm going to do all that for you. You're going to have to admit that I'm the only God that can do that, and you're still not going to come to actual faith in me. 
you're still not really going to know me. I'm really not going to reveal myself to you in all of my saving graciousness. And yet I'm going to use you, and yet you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. Why? Because verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you. That means I'm going to dress you. To be girded around the waist oftentimes means prepared for battle. But I will gird you very intimate. I will dress you. I will make you king. I'm going to open gates to you. I'm going to give you cities. I'm going to give you treasures. I'm going to do all that for you, though you have not known me. God keeps saying that. You're not going to know me, but I'm going to use you for the sake of my people Israel. How sovereign is that God? He certainly seems to be arguing for his own complete sovereignty here. I will gird you, though you have not known me. For what reason? So that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I'm the Lord. There is no other. Try to find some other religious literature. Go, read, study, look at all the stuff that's out there. Find any other piece of religious literature that does this. God knows that no one else does it. He knows that no one else can do it. So he continues to utilize his ability to tell the future, conduct the future, to declare the future. He uses his ability to do that to continue to show his singularity, his onlyness. He is the only one who is actually God. No one else is, as proven by the fact that nobody else can do this. I keep putting that challenge forward. I keep telling people, show me, show me another example. Nobody can find it. I do that so that men may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. That doesn't mean time-wise. That means across the planet. Wherever the sun rises, wherever the sun sets, men are going to know that there's no one besides me. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. And there is no other. And now he defines himself as the God who does absolutely everything. I am the one forming the light and creating darkness. I'm the one causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's very common in modern theology, modern Christianity, to hear people argue that when things go well, that's God. God's blessing you. God's taking care of you. But then when things go bad, that's the devil. And so God and the devil are always at enmity with each other. They're always fighting. And the devil's always trying to cause you trouble and hurt and mayhem. And God is trying to protect you from that. And every once in a while, the devil gets a leg up. And that's when something bad goes on in your life. And no, God says right here, I do it all. I'm responsible for all of that. He may use secondary causes to accomplish it. The same way that he used Satan to bring about the fall in the garden. But it's still God who is in charge of it all. I mean, it's still God who put the tree in the garden. It's still God who is in charge of it all. 
So Satan is not on equal par with God. I remember years ago, my uncle had come over to my house, and he was a Christian man, an Armenian man, and we were talking about the idea that God was sovereign. And he kind of bristled at the idea, and he said, no, no, he said, no, um, uh, God doesn't do evil things. Well, that's the word that the King James Bible uses. Instead of saying bringing calamity, it's the word raw in Hebrew. I bring the trouble. It was translated by the King James translators as evil. And he said, no, you, you can't show me a verse that says that. I said, sure I can. So I opened here to Isaiah 45, and I showed it to him. And as he was leaving, he said, you're forcing me to rethink everything I know. I said, good. It's about time. You got to come to grips with the fact that the only God who is says, I'm the God who forms the light. I'm the God who creates the darkness. I'm the God who causes well-being. And I am the God who is creating the calamity. And I am the Lord who does all of this. When we say God is sovereign, that's what we mean. We mean that God is in charge of all of it. And there is no corner of his universe. There is no random cell. There is no rebellious atom somewhere that is outside of God's control. He calls the stars by name. He's in charge of the hosts of heaven. That's why he has the name Lord God Sabaoth. And that's why he keeps demonstrating that the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth are nothing and no one can stop his hand and no one can say to him, what are you doing? That's why David would write, where is your God? He's on his throne doing whatever pleases him. So he is represented all the way through the Bible as the sovereign God who can do whatever he wants. But in this case, it's God himself defining himself as the God who does all of it. So if you don't agree with the notion that God is in charge of the hardships in your life and the blessings in your life, which, by the way, I would argue that the hardships of your life are actually part of the blessings of your life, because through the hardships of your life, God is teaching you dependence on him and building up your faith in him. So even the troubles that come to your life, Paul writes, there is no temptation, no trial, no difficulty taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. He's going to provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. That's Paul's theology. Where did he get that theology? Well, he gets that from the fact that the God who is a loving God, who is a gracious God, who is a long-suffering God, is also the God who's in charge of calamity. And since he's absolutely sovereign, then the calamity must have a purpose. And so if he's bringing calamity into your life, all things work together for good to those who are the called, to those who love God according to his purpose. And so the Bible keeps stating over and over this fundamental truth right here, that God is in charge of everything, and to those that he loves, to those that he called, the absolutely everything that he's in charge of all works to your good. So really, even the calamity is a blessing. Of course, if you're an enemy of God, even the blessings he brings to you are a calamity, because they're going to result in the hardening of your heart.
and the rebellion against God sealing your judgment. The, I am the one who's forming the light. I'm the one who's creating the darkness. I'm the one who's causing well-being. I'm the one who is creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And again, remember, this is all part of God's defense of himself. He doesn't say it here, but I think the natural question is, who else does that? I do that. Does anybody else? No, well, then I'm the only God. Verse 8, a very poetic verse right in the midst of all this. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. That sounds very prophetic, that there's a day coming when the righteousness of God is going to cover the earth and pour down from the clouds. So let the earth open up and let salvation bear its fruit. And let righteousness spring up with it. That picture, by the way, of righteousness coming down from the sky and coming up from the earth is the exact same imagery that we read in Noah's flood. That the skies open up and the deeps rise and the earth is covered with water. And so here, rather poetically, God uses the same language to say the same way that I judge the earth. From above and from below, I'm going to cause righteousness on the earth. From above and from below. And righteousness is going to cover the earth the same way, I think, that the flood did. Drip down, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. He may be saying, I created the righteousness. He may be saying, I created the salvation that is now going to bear fruit. Or he may be saying, I created the heavens and the clouds and the earth and every bit of it. And therefore, if I want to make it all righteous, I can because it all belongs to me. No matter which way you read it, it is still God's defense of himself. I am the Lord who created all these things. Okay, so I have been arguing from a positive position that even the hardships of life are a blessing to those that are called, to those that are loved by God, those who were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. But what about those who aren't? What about those who are here on the earth who are rebels against God? That's how he's going to respond starting in verse 9 and starts with the word woe. Woe to you. It's never a good thing when God starts saying woe to you. He's not saying woe the way that we say woe to a horse. He's not saying halt or back up. He's saying woe, unhappiness, judgment is headed your way. Severe discontent is coming to you. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Think about that statement for a moment. He has just said, I bring light, I bring darkness, I create well-being, I create calamity. Now, knowing that he's the one who does all that, do you have any right to argue with him and say that what he's doing is not right or not fair, not fun, that it's painful, that it's uh, inequitable? Do you have any right to quarrel with him? 
Well, obviously, the answer here is no, because he says, will an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth argue with his maker? The earthenware vessel there is the NASB translation of a word that just means pottery, clay pottery, can be broken pottery, can be cracked pottery. And is the pottery, which is nothing more than the clay of the earth, is the pottery going to argue with the maker of everything? And will the maker of everything stand for it? Will he take their advice? Will he say, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. I'm so glad you were here to correct me. No, instead, since he is the God who is sovereignly in charge of everything and who created everything, then woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or will the thing that you are making say to you, he has no hands? Okay, so let's put flesh and blood on that. What God is saying is, if you're sitting at a pottery wheel and you're forming some piece of pottery, a bowl or a vase or anything that you're making, at any point is the clay going to rise up and argue with you and say, you're making me into an ashtray? I wanted to be a major piece of pottery that gets painted beautiful and sits up in a corner and people admire it and it turns out I'm just this? Well, that's not right. That's not fair. It's never happened because the clay is an inanimate object. And since the clay is inanimate, it doesn't get to respond to the potter. The potter gets to make whatever he wants, however he wants to make it. And so he says, will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or will the thing that you're making say he has no hands? He has no ability to make me into what he wants me to be. He has no power. Obviously, the answer to both of those is no. Inanimate clay is not going to argue with you about what you're making. And it's not going to mock you. It's not going to insult you. It's not going to say, well, he has no hands. He has no ability to make anything. This is a concept that God seems to like. Isaiah's contemporary at this moment, as we've said several times through the weeks, is Jeremiah. Jeremiah learns the exact same lesson that Isaiah just learned here. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're in Isaiah, the very next book is Jeremiah. Not only is God going to present Jeremiah with the same scenario, he's then going to draw the same conclusions. And he's again going to declare that he's the only God that is and that he's not going to give up on Israel. So whether it's Isaiah or whether it's Jeremiah, I keep saying all the prophets speak with one voice. Here you're going to see that again. Chapter 18 of Jeremiah, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. So first, get up, go down to where the pottery is being made, I'll meet you there. So then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, 
making something on the wheel, working there at the potter's wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to make a pot on a wheel, but it turns out it's really difficult. Your hand has to be very stable. The instruments that you use have to be very careful because this thing's spinning around and around. And if you make one mistake, it's not just one little indentation on one side. It's an indentation that keeps wrapping around and around and around. It's real easy to mess up a piece of pottery on a wheel. Well, that's what happened to this potter. He spoiled the thing that he was making, so he remade it into something else, into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make it. So God sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house. The potter is making something on the wheel. As he's making it, he mars it. And then he squishes it, makes the clay into a lump again, re-spins it, makes it into a new thing that apparently wasn't like the old thing. It's like, okay, then I'll go back to making these things. That was the example that God wanted Jeremiah to see. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build them up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you, which he was, as Jeremiah is predicting this, they're about to go into the Babylonian captivity. So God says, I'm fashioning calamity for you. That's exactly what Isaiah said. I'm the God who makes calamity. I'm the God that brings blessings. I do all these things. Now he's saying to Israel, I can do whatever I want with you, and I can do whatever I want with foreign nations, and I can utilize those nations, and I can react to those nations accordingly, and I'm going to do it all for your sake because ultimately I'm fashioning your future for you. Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you, and I am devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each one of you from his evil way, and reform your ways and your deeds. So God tells them calamity is coming, but he starts by pointing out, and oh yeah, I'm sovereign, I can do whatever I want with you. The same way that the potter can make from the clay whatever he wants, I can make from you whatever I want. And I can bring calamity in order to drive you back to me. And if I say there's a glorious future for you, I can also do that. Because I am the sovereign God who can make you into whatever I want to make you into. It's the same God who, when he's forming the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. It's the same thing as Isaiah saying it's going to be like a nation born in a day. 
So given everything we know about God and God's presentation of himself tonight, if he wants to say, I'm going to put my spirit in them, they're going to look on me whom they have pierced. I'm going to make a new covenant with them, not like the old covenant that I made with them before. If he wants to give them a glorious kingdom and a glorious future, which he has already announced, can he do that? Yes. Based on everything he has said about himself, you got to say yes. Absolutely. And yet, not to pound on this too hard, yet there are theologies out there that will say God's done with Israel. And here's God saying, no, 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 no. I don't give up on Israel. I just do whatever I want with Israel. Just like he's going to do whatever he wants with you. Has your life gone exactly the way you planned? Because mine didn't. I had plan A for me. Fortunately, God had a whole lot better plan. My life didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out. But it turned out a lot better in the long run. Because he could do whatever he wanted with me and you. Behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you, and I'm devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our own evil hearts. Sound familiar? That's the rebellion of human beings. God says, I got a plan for you. And people go, nah, no, I got no hope. You're going to bring calamity on me. Then I'm going to give up on you. I'm going to make my own plan. I'll find my own way out of this. Thank you very much. I'll do it the way I want to do it, according to the stubbornness of my own heart. Therefore, says verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, who has ever heard the like of this? The Virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in byways, bypaths, and not on the highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing, and everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. And like an east wind, I will gather them, before the enemy, I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Because they did not like that prediction from Jeremiah that God could do whatever he wanted with Israel. And what he was going to do was bring calamity on them because of their hard hearts. He taught Jeremiah that at the potter's house. And then, of course, you're probably familiar with that idea of the pottery and the clay from um, Romans 9, I think it's 20, right around there. If you would, Micah, look it up. Romans 9, because Paul then picks it up in his argument for God's continual faithfulness to Israel in order to say, 
that just because Israel is unbelieving and scattered at the moment, it's all just part of what God is doing because he can do whatever he wants. And people are going to say, well, then how does he hold men accountable? How does he judge people if people only do whatever he wants them to do? And that's the question that Paul is answering here in Romans 9. There, I set you up. There you go. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Okay, hold on. Well, the thing that's made, say to the one that's making him, why'd you make me like this? Sound familiar? It's the same argument Isaiah made. It's the same argument Jeremiah made. Paul picked it up, imported it into the New Testament, said, same God, same deal. You don't get to argue back. Keep going. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Same thing as Jeremiah at the potter's house. Once he had messed up the pot, he reformed it, made something completely different. And God took the time to say, that's me. That's how I deal with Israel. I can do whatever I want with what's mine. I can make them any way I want. I can treat them any way I want. So Paul's argument is, out of the same lump of clay, he can make one vessel for honor. Set it up on the shelf, paint it beautiful, shine a light on it. An honorable vessel. And I can make another one for dishonor. It's an ashtray. It's a, it's a heap. It's nothing. And God says, I can do that and do it out of the same lump of clay. So obviously he's saying, out of the same humanity, out of the same dust of the ground, I can make some people for honor. I can elect them. I can choose them. I can give them to my son. I can put my Holy Spirit inside them. And I can also make from that same lump of clay dishonorable ones. Because if you continue reading, which I'm going to ask you to do now, if you continue reading, God is going to say that he makes some vessels of wrath. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So Paul's theology of God's electing grace that we've certainly been talking about on Sunday mornings out of the book of Ephesians, he finds all that in these passages of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that God, who is completely sovereign, can do whatever he wants with the lump of clay that belongs to him, and he can make vessels of mercy that he's going to be merciful to and kind to and save them, and then he can make vessels of wrath that are fitted for destruction. That's the reason he made them. He made them for the purpose of ultimately destroying them. So, even if you think about Israel 2,000 years ago, even if you think about Israel all the way back to coming out of Egypt, there was a pottery trail left behind. And there were vessels that they made that they carried with them that were fine vessels, that were well-made, vessels of honor, something to set up in your house. And then there's just all this broken pottery, all this stuff that was made, like bowls or whatever, that when they broke... You just threw them away. And in fact, in Jerusalem, there was a place called a potter's field. You would take your broken pottery and just throw it in there. And so the typology of the potter and the clay permeates scripture. 
And whether you're reading it in Jeremiah, whether you're reading it in Isaiah, whether you're reading it in Romans, in all of those examples, what you see is God using that to declare his absolute sovereignty over everyone and everything, especially on the back of saying, I'm the one who forms the light. I'm the one who creates the darkness. I'm the one that causes well-being, and I'm the one who brings about the calamity, the raw, the trouble of life. I'm the God who does all these things, and that's all in the midst of his argument. I'm the only God who is. Get together. Make your argument. Make your case. What do you got? Compare yourself to me. I'm in control of absolutely everyone and everything. How about you? So then you can see why he would say, back here in Isaiah 45, verse 9, you can see why he would say, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Paul said, who are you, old man? Who are you to argue against God? Will the one who was formed say to the one who formed him, why'd you make me like this? Paul answers the same way that Isaiah does. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making won't say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Can you imagine walking up to somebody who's about to have a baby and saying, oh, that's a bad idea. What are you making? What kind of child is this going to be? I predict all sorts of trouble for this child. Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? That's a huge insult. You know enough not to say that to a father or a mother who are anxiously expecting their newborn arrival. And you would never insult them. His point is, and yet you would come insult me as if what I'm bringing forth isn't good. And you know better than to do that to each other. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and Israel's maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. If you just ask me about what your future is, I'll tell you, just like I just did. The end result of that should be, whatever work it is, whatever you're doing, whatever your, not just livelihood, but whatever your life here on the planet, you'll commit your way to me completely when I demonstrate to you that I know in advance what your life is going to be. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the works of my hands. It is I who made the earth. And created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. And I ordained all the hosts of heaven. I have aroused him in righteousness. And I will make all his ways smooth. He's now talking about Cyrus again. Remember this argument is about Cyrus. As a part of the larger argument that I'm the only God who is. I have aroused him in righteousness. He's not saying Cyrus is righteous. He's saying, my righteousness is going to arouse him because I'm righteous, because I'm going to bring my people back. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth, and I will build my city 
and my exiles will go free. Babylon is going to destroy the city and destroy the temple. Here's God saying, it's going to be rebuilt. And I'm going to make sure it gets rebuilt through Cyrus. He will build my city. He will let my exiles go free without any payment or any reward, says the Lord of hosts. Tom, if you would, go back to Isaiah 43.3 for just a second. Just go back a couple of chapters. You'll read it in just a moment. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and they will bow to you and they will make supplications to you. Okay, so what does Isaiah 43.3 say? You may remember this from a couple weeks ago. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Here it is. God is saying the same thing again. In exchange for you, in exchange for my children Israel, I'm going to give these other people groups to the Medo-Persians so that they still have people in chains. They still have servants to build their empire, but it's not going to be you because I'm going to redeem you. I am your savior. And so the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature. By the way, if you don't know where those areas are, if you were to look at a map of the Middle East, an ancient map, what you're going to see, of course, Egypt, that's directly below Israel, Canaan land. If you look in southern Arabia, that's the land of the Sabaeans. If you go south of Egypt, you're in the land of Cush, getting into Africa. And so those areas were always problematic for anybody who conquered the Middle East. Once they had uh, established themselves, built up their empire, built up their treasures, they always had to deal with the fact that the Sabaeans and the Cushites and the Egyptians oftentimes would band together and come attack them because they wanted the treasure and they wanted to take the land. So here is God saying that the produce, what is made by Egypt and all the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, who are all men of stature. They're mighty men of war. They're able to fight, and yet they're going to come over to you, and they're going to be yours. And they're going to walk behind you, which means you're going to be the king. You're going to be their leader. Surely they're going to walk behind you. They will come over in chains. In other words, they're going to be conquered, then chained, and then brought to you. And they will bow down to you as the king. And they're going to make their supplications to you. Now, at this moment in the NASB, there's a very strange bit of punctuation. It says, they will make their supplication to you, which to me is the end of a statement, period. The NASB puts a colon and then puts the next sentence as if it is a quote, implying that when the Cushites, the Egyptians, and the Sabaeans come to see Cyrus, that this is the supplication that they're going to make to him. I don't think so. I think God is simply telling Cyrus, this is what's going to happen. And when it happens, surely God is with you and there is no one else. There is no other God. 
That can't be the supplication coming from the Egyptians, the Cushites, and the Sabaeans, especially considering that God has already said three times to Cyrus, you don't know me, and you're not going to know me. Instead, I believe that the end of the verse should have been at, they're going to bow down in front of you, and they're going to make their supplications, their requests. Have mercy on us, give us food, give us water, help us. They're going to make the supplications to you, demonstrating that you're in charge of them. Then the next statement is in league with everything else we've been reading in this chapter. The statement is, surely God is with you, because this is what's going to happen. Surely God is with you, and there is no one else. There is no other God. Truly, verse 15, truly, thou art a God who hides himself. Now, I don't think you could make the statement, surely you're a God who hides himself, if you also have the Cushites, the Egyptians, and the Sabaeans bowing down in front of Cyrus and then saying, surely God is with you and there is no other God. That doesn't make any sense to me. Instead, I think it's a declaration from God that he's going to accomplish all this because there is no other God who can do these kind of things. And yet Isaiah says, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. And he is. He's a God who hides himself. He's a God who is using Cyrus, though Cyrus doesn't know him. He's a God who is controlling the destiny, the history, and the future of Israel, even though they're chasing after other gods, even though they also don't seem to know him. They certainly are not worshiping him. And he's not the God who shows up you know, to everybody in the clouds full of lightning and saying, I'm God, I'm the only God, so that he terrifies everybody into worshiping him. Instead, he's the God who sometimes speaks in a still, small voice. Instead, sometimes he's the God who works behind the scenes and doesn't make himself obvious, but he's always right there. So let me just read so that we can get to the place where I opened so that I can let you go for tonight. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them, the manufacturers of idols, will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord. Follow this. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. How long is that? It's an everlasting salvation. He's going to save them with an everlasting. And then just so that you're not confused about how long everlasting might be, you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. So God has this glorious future planned for Israel. And he has just compared them with the people who are going to be put to shame and be humiliated because they worship their idols. And so they're going to be sent away in humiliation. But Israel is going to be saved by the Lord, even though he has said, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to bring about this trouble for you. But I'm not doing it to lose you. I'm doing it to correct you because I've saved you with an everlasting salvation and you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. How much shame and humiliation is it to Israel when Christian preachers stand up and say, God's done with Israel? That's pretty humiliating. Mm -hmm. God says, not going to happen. 
That's not God's mindset. That's not God's approach to Israel. So I think we ought to get on God's side in this and say when he's declaring a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah by which he's going to save them eternally, when he says they get an everlasting salvation and they will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity, I think we ought to agree with God on that one. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And he did not create it a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark, unknown, distant land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in some waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back, so that every knee will bow and every tongue, Paul's words are, every tongue will confess, every tongue is going to swear. And they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come from him. And all who were angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and all be glorified. Can you see now why Paul would say in the book of Romans, Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. He didn't make that up. He just said the same thing Isaiah said. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So the New Testament theology that we're arguing for God's continued faithfulness to Israel is grounded in Pauline theology that is grounded in Isaiah. And so whether Old Testament or New, we see the same consistent theology, which is God does not change. I'm going to let you go in a second, but let me just wrap up by saying you ought to be really, really happy tonight that God does not change. Amen. You should be really happy because if he could give up on Israel, he could give up on you. But this is the God who declares over and over that he has made everlasting promises of salvation to Israel because he's made everlasting promises of salvation to you and you don't want him to change. Got it? Got it? All of that was part of God saying, okay, I'm God. I'm the only God. 
I am the singular God. I am the unique God. I'm the God who tells the future. I'm the God who explains the past. I'm the only God who does that. What do the other gods got? If you can't do what I can do, then you've got to admit that I'm the only God who deserves worship. And that is the overriding point of this whole section of Isaiah. Questions? Yes, sir. How does a preacher preaching that there is no future for Israel deal with verse 17 where it says, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation? Do they even try to deal with that? Well, first off, I'd have to say, since I'm not one of them, I can't really tell you how they deal with it. I just wonder if you've heard somebody... I've never heard anybody address it. So that, it's kind of like one of those tear the page out of the Bible. Yeah, just ignore it. Yeah. Just, Especially if your approach to preaching is that every Sunday you get to just pull some passage out of its context and just preach on that. Then it makes it real easy to avoid the stuff that disagrees with you. And boy, that is the methodology of preaching all over the internet. Yes? It's interesting to know that you know, here the verse says that God hides himself. But we also know from Romans 1 that we are without excuse. Yeah. So it's not, even though God may be hiding himself, you know, Romans 1 tells us that what can be known about God is divine, shown to everybody. His divine nature yeah. um, and his eternal power are evident yeah. through the creation so that he's that can be perceived and that's not yeah. but it's interesting even there it says it says calls his attributes his his invisible attributes so it's perceived but yet he does hide himself in a yeah. way yeah. so Isaiah the invisible God who chooses that so. right and I do think that part of what Isaiah is getting at is you're, you're doing all these things you're working all these things but men don't recognize it they don't see it and yet, that's the way you wanted it. Right. You're, you're right there doing it. You're right there solving in charge of it. But you want men in their darkness to remain in their darkness. Yes, sir? So um, everything we just read tonight, Isaiah 45, pretty much solidifies, once you're saved, you cannot be unsaved. Absolutely. Because that would be to say that God changed his mind. Now, if you say men are saved as a result of their choice or their decision or their will, then they could be unsaved because they're the ones that saved themselves. And so then they could change their mind later and say, no, I'm not going to do this. And then later they could rededicate themselves and get themselves saved again. But if it's God who did the saving, and if that saving was determined before the foundation of the world, then in order for somebody to be lost, who Christ died for, who received the Holy Spirit of God as the seal of their redemption, if they were saved through God's eternal intention for their righteousness and justification, then for them to be lost would mean God changed his mind, the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient to save people, and the Holy Spirit of God actually does abandon people despite the fact that God referred to it as the seal of their redemption and God who chose to do things in righteousness and justifying his people would have to take that justification back would have to say never mind I, I intended that you be holy and just and righteous before me but I've changed my mind 
And there's so many segments of the Bible that say God never changes. So it's really hard to argue biblically that God would change his mind once he saves somebody. And there are people who would agree with me on all of that where the church is concerned. Except that Israel has the exact same promises. So you can't get away with saying, yeah, but he changed his mind on Israel. But not on me. So. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was a good comment. As you can tell by the fact that it got my wheels turning and I kept you here even later. So. Anything else? All right. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.